0: From the small towns
3: to the big cities. We bring you the stories that matter.
1: This is. This is. This is.
4: The Our American Stories Podcast.
3: This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. We can't wait to bring you these fantastic stories from our team. They work hard day in and day out to bring you stories from everyday Americans. We tell the stories about this great country that may not be perfect, but it sure is beautiful. If you'd like to support us in all that we do here, visit OurAmericanStories.com and go to the giving tab. Join our team in the work that they do and become a part of of all that's going on here. We're a nonprofit, and we appreciate both one-time gifts and monthly donations. It's for you and through you that we tell these stories. And now we have the story of spam. Yes, the canned meat. Also, the story of the man who paints rocks for our veterans. But first, here's the story of how Blockbuster almost beat Netflix. Jim Keyes, their former CEO, tells us the story of Blockbuster during its final days. Here's Joey with the story. In 2005, Jim Keys received the Horatio Alger Award, joining
4: the ranks of Rich DeVos, Buzz Aldrin, Hank Aaron, and many more Americans who exemplified great virtue and perseverance. The award was well-deserved. As you might have heard in our previous stories with Jim, He came from nothing, worked at McDonald's, and would become the CEO of 7-Eleven, and successfully brought them out of bankruptcy. Turns out, Jim had a real talent for turning companies around, a talent needed by another company in peril, a company that holds a special place in all of our hearts.
2: I started looking for similar opportunities. I saw in Blockbuster a very similar environment. It's hard hard to see that on the surface, but They had small box stores, yes, but really what they were in the business of is convenience. So people were saying, well, the Blockbuster store is gonna go away. I never saw them as being a video rental store. I saw them as being a convenient access to media entertainment store. So it's, in effect just another form of convenience. Uh, I also saw the technology that was coming wasn't quite here yet for the ability to stream movies, to have access via the internet, Now the capability wasn't there, the infrastructure wasn't there, but the potential was. So my objective in taking on Blockbuster was to first make the stores better. This created a false perception that all I cared about was the stores, not true. Because first thing we had to do is right the cash flow of the company. cash flow of the company was suffering, stock was suffering. Uh, The week I got there, they violated a bank covenant. So they were not satisfying their financial obligations. So job one, right the ship. Get the stores to be more productive and then step two build that digital uh, future for the company so that was my that was my objective and all was going actually quite well for the first year and uh, i joined the company in mid 2007 by the third quarter of 2008 i had one full year under my belt we had significant increase in same store sales uh, we bought a streaming video company called movie link and we were very well positioned. We had already a by-mail business and an offering called Total Access so that customers could get our movies any way they want, by mail, via a kiosk, um, in the stores, or uh, via streaming. So it was a very good offering. Um, unfortunately, again, back to the adversity thing, I sometimes I think that black cloud maybe just follows me around, but <laughs> I have to keep reminding myself, this, this is potentially, there's going to be a silver lining on the other side of this. But at Blockbuster in, 2008, everyone forgets that Lehman Brothers collapsed. We were in the midst of a worldwide financial crisis. The banks were virtually shut down and Blockbuster had a billion dollars of debt, of which a third was due to be refinanced in 2009. So uh, I had little choice in in uh, shifting from transformation mode to survival mode for Blockbuster. So we had to pull back, retrench, try to finance the debt, and make it through this financial crisis. And ultimately, um, we started looking for partners, uh, distribution partners. Uh, Google was a very high potential partner. We were very close to a deal with Google that would have put us side by side with YouTube. So imagine everything paid for TV or movie would be Blockbuster, and everything free would be YouTube under the Google banner. Uh, that would have been a huge differentiator. We had an opportunity at one point to, to lock up uh, the content that Netflix started streaming. We could have gotten it exclusively for $100 million a year. Of course, the company only made $180 at the time in and, and EBITDA, so it would have consumed a lot of our cash flow. It was a very high-risk proposition. We didn't take that exclusive deal at the time thinking that we could do it later, and we missed a window of opportunity there. So there are a couple of decisions I would like to have back if we could, but with the information we had the time, with what we knew at the time, we did the best that we could. We like to believe we would have been far better off for the consumer, a far better alternative for the consumer than Netflix, uh, because you think about the difference that Blockbuster was. Netflix from the beginning was a purveyor of older movies, older content. That's really how they made their money. When they started streaming, they had no new releases at all. Blockbuster Store had new movies, old movies, TV shows. We were the aggregator of anything anybody wanted to see, rather than offer a small sliver of all-you-can-eat entertainment. And so we like to believe that we would be what doesn't exist today, which is the one-stop shop. You want to see a movie, it doesn't matter what movie it is. You want to see Top Gun or Paul Blart, Mall Cop. You know, go to the blockbuster icon and you'd be able to find it. That was what we were building. With the acquisition of Movie Link, it gave us all of the new releases. With the acquisition of the long tail content that we also could have acquired when we bought Movie Link, that would have given us both new releases, old movies, and TV shows. The only thing we didn't do at the time and no one was doing it was creating new content which we could have evolved into and but you know again it's one of those what if coulda opportunities I, I uh, a story I like to share I ran into to uh, Warren Buffett at Bill Gates house of all things I was invited to a Microsoft CEO summit um, and so I was a bit starstruck I'm walking I'm looking around there's Bezos there's Gates there's you know all these people and Warren Buffett's there at the buffet getting shrimp <laughs> I thought, Okay, so I introduced myself, said, hi, Warren, Jim Keyes, nice to meet you. And he said, I know, I know, yeah, I remember you from 7-Eleven. He sent me a nice note when I was inducted into Horatio Alger. Uh, In fact, see that plaque over there? Calvin Coolidge, see? Press on. That plaque, that very plaque, came from my McDonald's. They let me take it home. I took it to high school shop class or art class and did a decoupage on that little plaque that you see and it's been on my desk ever since. It's Calvin's Coolidge quote, Calvin Coolidge's quote about persistence. The plaque says, press on, nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not, nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education alone will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. Now, that was a quote by Calvin Coolidge. The same quote, I, I, when I f- first was inducted into Horatio Alger, Warren Buffett sent me his biography. Very nice. A nice note from Warren in it. He's also a Horatio Alger member. And uh, I'm flipping through the book, and an entire chapter of the book was one page. It was not only that quote. It was the same script. I don't know if he also worked at McDonald's and got it off the wall from the poster or what, but it was exactly the same script in the book that he sent me. So so I've always been a Warren Buffett fan, I and I, and I, I was able to share with him that we shared in common Columbia University and, and a belief in this Calvin Coolidge quote that persistence and determination are omnipotent. So back to my story. So I run into Warren Buffett, he remembered me from Horatio Alger from 7-Eleven. He said, so what are you doing now? And I told him uh, that I had made the move to a Blockbuster. He said, oh, yeah, 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 I think I remember that. And I and I was, this is right around 2008 when the financial markets were collapsing and we were just getting crushed by the press and by, you know, perception that Blockbuster was going to have to file. And I said, you know, Warren, I, I may have made a big mistake. This was, you know, I had such a good run at 7-Eleven. I took this on. So frustrating, and I don't know if I should stay or go, and you know, not sure what to do. And he and he looked at me. And he said, "Jim, are you kidding?" He said, "You're in the game." He said, uh, "Would you rather be on the on the bench watching somebody else doing this, or would you rather be at bat?" He said, "Yeah, so you got knocked down. Get up, dust yourself off, get back in there." He said, uh, "It's far better to be in the game. Take another swing. What have you got to lose?" And I I literally took that advice, I walked away from there feeling so much better, a little embarrassed that I was playing the victim myself. So my own advice about adversity and dealing with challenges. And I decided to stay. The easy answer would have been, I didn't create this problem, I'm out of here, right? I stayed, saw the company through a successful restructuring, we got the company, sold a dish. I was able to keep the stores open, save 19,000 jobs, and, and felt so much better that I wasn't a quitter, that I didn't bail. Now, could it have been a better outcome? Could we have sold to Google instead of Dish and restructured around a digital network? Yes, I wish. But still, I feel good about the outcome because ultimately, uh, I know I did the right thing. And I credit some of that to Warren Buffett, running into him in a fortuitous way that one day.
3: And a special thanks to Joey Cortez and to Alex Cortez for their great work on this piece. And a special thanks to Jim Keyes for telling the story, and it's a story about a lot, but most importantly, it's a story about failure, and more importantly, how we respond to failures, and the power of persistence, along with the power of courage and love, and imagination, are recurrent themes here on this show. We love them, and I know you do too, and they are a unique feature of American life, this combination, and around the world, as more and more people have the opportunities that they do here. If you love what you're listening to and the stories we bring you every week, please, by all means, give us a five-star rating. It really helps us out on Apple Podcast and Spotify or whatever platform you listen to us on. And if you have a story to share, we want to hear it. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com and click on the Your Stories tab. We can't wait to hear from you. Up next, the incredible story of spam brought to us by the author of The Book of Spam. And that's Dustin Black, who tells us the story of this often misunderstood household name. Here's Dustin.
4: Right off the bat, it was a lot of interesting. You'd be going to work and you'd pull over and call korean radio show or something like that to talk about it you know what's great about spam and i think why it had the appeal is it's got that it's been around for forever and everybody has a story about it like there's very there's nobody in the world that you can't sort of like spark up a conversation around spam you know any corner of the globe it's there's an experience with it Uh, i was on production with Tim Gunn a couple years ago and he and I bonded over spam stories growing up because that was part of his like heritage and I mean spam is fascinating and I think that what Hormel maybe doesn't even get as much credit for as they should is sort of revolutionizing the the meat process or the meat packing process. Uh, Spam itself is is a result of uh, you know a hundred years of technology of trying to preserve meat to get it shelf stable for longer periods of time. And strangely enough, like Napoleon, when he was moving his armies, uh, was really fascinated with how do I feed these these armies through really cold Russian winters and keep them fed and they're getting tired of salted and dried out food. So he started playing around and some of his, his scientists, I guess you can call them, with packing meat in glass jars and putting fat on top of it and they would boil it for an hour. And that boiling was basically an early version of pasteurization. And from there, it went to cans, metal, thick metal cans. And it got to the point where the cans were larger and heavier than the meat itself. And so it wasn't very easy to transport. It was very difficult to open. There's stories of the war when they would use their guns and muskets to shoot open the cans. I mean there was a lot of problems back then because they would they would make the cans too big, and so they couldn't cook the middle. So there was botulism, and there was problems with you know f- spoiled middle, and the outside was good. And um, so eventually, through sort of I don't know his his brilliance, Hormel he came back during World War II and said basically like we put it in this the smaller size, you cook it for three hours, you get a you get a top that you can open. It's a way of preserving the meat, a pasteurization that keeps it shelf stable, and that was really like revolutionary and kind of in 1937 was the start of this sort of processed uh, meat and and for him too it was at the time like in world war one and when he was serving in world war one they were shipping meat with bone in it they would ship the 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 cow or they'd ship the pork and it would have bones in it that's not very efficient for weight it's not very efficient because there's a lot of scrap pieces left over so he said look if we take the bones out if we grind it up We put it in a smaller can, we pasteurize it, it'll ship. And in 1937, that was kind of the start of Spam was born. So what was fascinating in 1937, then he helped revolutionize, you know, World War II was just on the verge of starting up. It was kind of spam was sprinkling in. It wasn't as ubiquitous as it is today, or it wasn't quite as popular, but quickly, you know, the military recognized the advantage of it. And so they started shipping it to all the the military overseas. And what's fascinating is they, I think that's kind of where the reputation of spam started and was solidified. You had You know people on these bases in Guam and you know around the world and they're getting fed spam constantly because it was kind of such an easy food to send but also what happened is the government had them overcook it essentially for safety like they wanted instead of just cooking it for three hours they cook it for five and that kind of mushed the meat so they're getting fed this lesser quality uh, processed meat uh, around the world And then because the idea, and because during the war, they needed as much protein sent over as possible, other manufacturers were doing it in sizes that weren't as reliable. So you'd get 12-pound sizes and six-pound sizes, and that flexing up of different quality standards and of different processing and of different cooking, you kind of ended up with a a perfect storm of these soldiers that, that were stationed around the world getting overfed something they were tired of eating getting mixed quality, getting bad quality, and then, you know, in a perfect marketing storm, then they were all sent home to spread the word. And so that's how we ended up with Spam so popular in Guam and Spam so popular in Hawaii. But also I think how, what started the bad name and reputation for Spam was because it was such a, a mixed bag. And so, you know, here we are 80 years later uh, and it still kind of has that reputation of being something that's like weird or strange animal parts or gross, which is, which is really, interesting and unfortunate because at the end of the day, spam is actually a really good cuts of meat. Like it's really just ham, pork shoulder, salt water, and a little sodium nitrate. And sodium nitrates found in any processed meat. It just keeps it safe. But it's, it's the better cuts of meat. The, the byproducts that, that you don't use go into hot dogs and sausages. Like that's the real, like if you will eat a hot dog or a sausage, you should really have no problem with spam because it's actually better cuts in quality of meat. And for years, it got the reputation of like the gel, right? Like that's one of the first things people, and a little bit less less so now, but like people are always like, ooh, it's got the gross gel on the outside and it makes that funny noise. And what's interesting is that was actually, that's pure protein. That's actually not that bad for you and it's a byproduct of the cooking process. Protein goes towards heat. If you're pasteurizing meat in a can, the heat draws the protein out, it stays there, but then people open it up and it looks gross and looks like you know petroleum jelly or whatever. So back in 2001, they ground up a little bit of potato starch, stuck that in there. The potato starch traps the protein, and you don't have any gel anymore. So since 2001, they've got rid of the gel, which has helped with the, the reputation of it. But I still think people have trouble thinking about buying meat off a shelf. But, you know, it's a, it's a state of mind because there's so many, you know, cans of soup, you know, have meat in it. and. It, there, you know, there's plenty of examples of shelf stable, and it all just goes back to that pasteurization, back to that idea of, you know, 200, 300 year old technology of if you cook it and kill everything and don't let any air and bacteria in there, it's shelf stable for a long amount of time. And Hormel's actually continued, and I think they, they don't get the credit they deserve for, for you know, revolutionizing a lot of the packaging processes they do. Their a lot of their lunch meats um, are now high pressure pasteurized and and that kills it basically squishes all the bad stuff in there and so it can be all natural without having to add a lot of extra preservatives but they do it through a pressure and and a technology you know like just shelf technology which is really interesting. The book uh, we go through a lot of different chapters of how it's made the origins of spam the origins of processed meat. It goes through the spam museum. It goes through the spam mobile that used to travel around the country giving out samples But throughout there we weave in a lot of photos from people that get sent into Hormel That was one of the more interesting parts about working on the ads as we had access to their archive and to the people down there that were getting the fan mail and You know you would have people that would send in the fan art. They would make costumes out of spam cans They would do weddings with a spam themed cake from around the world. You get people that would send in, you know, just their rooms that are painted like spam or their car is spam painted. And it's just, you know, it's it's had such, for such a long time, a a devoted fan base. And whether you love or hate spam, you know, you kind of have a story or you kind of know about it and have an affinity. You know, it's a brand that I think you sort of have to unabashedly love. You know, I know that there's a bit of a stigma out there with it. So if you're a spam fan and you're proud to wear a shirt, you sort of take that as a you know, a badge of honor, that you're someone that thinks differently, you're someone that is not scared to go against the grain. And, you know, you have your taste and you're not scared to share it. You know, in Korea, it, for a while was used as a wedding gift. It was an acceptable wedding gift because it was sort of something of such great esteem and honor. It's that universal sort of story device that I think was most interesting. You know, for years with the advertising, we had the tagline, we did crazy tasty. Um, It's not around anymore, but I really loved it when we did it because it was all, to me, it walked that line. As someone who loves it thinks, yeah, it is crazy tasty. Like I really, you know, I can put it in between two slices of bread i can cook it with eggs or put it you know in my spam sushi and it's amazing it's tasty and then the people that didn't like it or didn't get it kind of related to the crazy part like it's crazy tasty like and the crazy was like i don't get it but it's kind of fun and it's weird and i see people you know wear a shirt and i can strike up a conversation so we kind of walk the line with that um but at the end of the day like it's it's you know when it's prepared and cooked properly like it's it's really good and I think we're starting to see a resurgence of that there's a lot of fancy restaurants that are using it as a an addition to a, a you know a protein option and you know we've seen food trucks pop up with it uh, it's kind of has a bit of a resurgence in that sort of way that like uh, PBR has a resurgence you know it's that nostalgic sort of brand that uh, people love and kind of has a familiarity to them so yeah you can see a lot of, a lot of menus and you look at like French cuisine. You go to a really fancy French restaurant and you're gonna get served pork roulettes. But essentially it's a it's a fancy French version of Spam. It's the same thing. They grind it up, you know, they they put it into a a can or you know often into a a a dish, cook it, slice it and serve it. And it's exactly like what spam is, it's just you know, not pasteurized for as long. A classic brand that's been around for 80 90 years and it's gone through all the same phases that advertising has gone through so it came back was you know the the sort of solution to, to to dinner time problems so for a really long time that was the sort of like let me show you different ways to cook it let me let me give you recipe ideas you know i love the classic 60s casserole recipes and things like that where it's like spam jello and you know, just things that, like, probably shouldn't have ever seen the light of day. Uh, so it went through that phase. You know, they did, a, um, you know, some soap opera and sort of that, like, detergent soap, sort of, like, sponsorships. And in the 80s, it was all about, you know, helping helping solve dinner. You know, what are we gonna have for dinner tonight? It's a spam night. And um, they went then through a phase of the, the sort of spam a lot where they kind of leaned like, into the can nature of it where they had that little, uh, character that kind of popped up. He was on the cans and he he um, gave you recipe ideas and told you to, you know, don't forget spam. Pre 2001, there was a lot of uh, hacks or sort of urban wives tales around like what to do with the gel. So use it on a squeaky hinge, uh, you know, you could use it to buff a table, like all sorts of things like that. Uh, you know, and then I think there's a whole culture and art around the cans. You know, they they're these nice little tin cans. You can use them for painting or pot, you know, put some, some flowers in them or something like that. And so there's kind of a whole art collective around uh, what happens with the cans. Uh, and now, I, I, from what I see, they're in kind of a classic uh, mode. It's been through all the phases of, of food advertising from, you know, weird ads. You probably shouldn't have seen the light of day to uh, sponsorships to you know thousands of products you can buy today with you know if you need spam keychains or spam flip-flops you know they got you covered i mean because everybody's got a connection to it like you would get on the phone with someone in korea and they would talk about you know getting it as a wedding gift or you would get on the phone and they talk about making it as a kid or you know how much they loved eating it in college and it's it's one of those brands that just sparks you know it it and I, i think it's because of its its lore in pop culture right Back in the 70s when Monty Python did the spam, 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 spam. Like, that continued to ratchet up the lore. And it, it, you know, now we call, you know, email junk email, spam email. And, and that kind of comes a little bit off of the Monty Python. And Jim Henson had a, a, a spammy character in, in some of the movies and saw spam a lot. Eric Idle came out with the version of the Holy Grail that went to Broadway, which was brilliant. It was a lot of fun, but he recognized the value of the spam brand. And at the time, you know, Hormel recognized value in branded content. They partnered uh, with Eric Idle and they had Spam lot and it toured the globe and was very, very successful and a lot of fun. For years, they had the Spam Mobile that toured. Um, you know, they gave out, I think 1.7 million samples in 2007 or something like that. Uh, and there was five of them and they would go around and you'd get lines two blocks long and people could get a little sample of Spam. Uh, Cause it's one of those things that like if it's cooked per- properly. It's it's really good. Like, you don't take hamburger and just like, hey, let me cook hamburger and just give you a spoonful of hamburger. Like, that would be weird. But like, that's what people often think about or do as spam. They're like, here, put a fork in it and try it. And it's like, no, that's not right. Like, grill it. <laughs> you're going to get the Juilliard effect and get some nice caramelization. And you're going to put it between two buns or put it between two slices of bread. And it's really good. You know, you put it with some pineapple and rice and it's really tasty. Or put it with some mashed potatoes. Like, that that, you know you just have to prepare it properly and I think that's why we're seeing a resurgence in food trucks and in in some sort of uh, boutique sort of restaurants because the chefs realize it's you know it's easy they can get a lot of it and and store it and have it you know ready right there Um, but you grill it up or cook it properly and it makes a dish really tasty I mean next time you're in the store pick up you know a 12 ounce can or you know, they they do singles now, a three ounce, which is a little bit easier to get into. You don't have to, you know, have the commitment of a 12 ounce can, uh, and you can get a little slice. Uh, and try it, like, you know, put it, grill it up, put it between two pieces of bread, or, uh, you know, put it in some, bu- with some buns and some American cheese, and uh, have yourself a tasty little sandwich, because, you know, it's, it's you either had it, you know it's good, or you are scared of it, and You get over and try it.
3: And great job on that piece, as always, by Faith. And a special thanks to Dustin Black for giving us the skinny on Spam. And by the way, a fan of Spam, a fan of all these sort of processed meats, grew up on them as a kid, and still eat them. And there's just nothing better for me than any of the above. I love the Spam Mobile, and I always love that Oscar Mayer Mobile, too, shaped like a hot dog. These are just such great promotional vehicles for a product that, particularly the working class and the middle class, trying to stretch a family budget, would rely on these products to get us through the day. And as always, we want to thank the great folks at Hillsdale College for being sponsors of all of our great stories about American history and American life. If you're interested in a college that teaches all the good things in life and all the beautiful things in life, by all means, it's a perfect place to go to school and learn such things. I teach there two weeks a year. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Finally, the story of a man who paints rocks for our veterans. Ray Bubba Sorensen tells the story of his Freedom Rocks project in Iowa. Here's Monty with the story. Ray Bubba Sorensen was born in the heartland of America.
1: So I was born in Creston, Iowa, and I grew up in the little town of Fontenelle, Iowa, about 600 people. You know, growing up in Fontenelle, it was you know riding our bikes through the alleys and streets and you know just everybody knew everybody you know kind of that that whole line everyone's famous in a small town definitely applies to Hill, iowa you know played uh, about every sport and uh you know always loved football i guess more than any of the other ones but uh, played every sport and just had kind of a, your normal generic uh, high school or, or small town upbringing before technology really hit I guess. So uh, my Uncle Ted uh, served in uh, Vietnam as a Navy Seabee, and you know most most of the country knows that you know our Vietnam veterans weren't treated very well when they returned back from service and they came home to a to a very ungrateful nation and you know some were spat on some were know protested as they got off buses and planes and a lot of those guys kind of hid their service or or were ashamed of their service and my mom told me about all that and uh, you know that never sat well with me and then of course like as I was growing up movies like Rambo TV shows like Tour of Duty old old shows uh, World War II dramas like combat my mom would watch those with me and although you know they were you know fictional they were based on actual narratives of Vietnam veterans, World War II veterans. So my mom was able to kind of illustrate to me the service and sacrifice of, of all of these men and women, how much, especially our Korean War, which was a forgotten war, and, and our Vietnam veterans were treated when they came back. And that just really stuck with me, you know. And as I, as I grew up, I started to, I guess, parallel stories here, become interested in art. Like I said, I had a love for football, so a lot of my artwork is, you know, patriotic or it was very much sports based. So, you know, I kind of just started, I guess, on this diverging course of my love for veterans and, you know, my patriotism growing and me growing as an artist, it just kind of set me on this course to I wanted to say thank you to our veterans. But the birth of Ray's ultimate idea to say thank you. Happened in a movie theater. What the ultimate spark was is I was sitting in a movie theater watching the movie Saving Private Ryan. And, you know, if you've seen that movie, you know, the first half hour, you know, our men, and and you could even say boys, some of them were 17, 16, 17, 18 years old, are literally storming the beaches of Normandy, spilling their guts for our country. And it was just so realistic so in your face of you know what maybe a glimpse of of what war was like and i just left the theater saying i've got to find a way to say thank you to all our men and women that serve this country and that was kind of the birth of the freedom rock when i had the idea to you know paint the very first freedom rock i thought where am i going to put this mural where you know i i have no no experience as a mural artist so for me, I wasn't going to, you know, tap tap some business owner on the shoulder and say, "Hey, can I? I have no experience at all. Can I paint the side of your wall?" So, you know, my my thoughts turned to the rock out there. The first rock was uh, known as just the rock. The rock it sits next to a rock quarry, and you know they're mining, uh, you know, gravel and and limestone and and things out of this quarry, and they hit this huge granite boulder, so they just l- left it there as a marker to the entrance to the quarry and kids started graffitiing it and I started tagging it with you know all sorts of stuff you know i think there's been marriage proposals there have been there was a giant m&m at once there were there were uh, i think one of, i have one of the pictures though one of the funnier ones was santa claus with his pants down moon in the traffic around christmas and and that's just kind of how it went and i thought hey for memorial day i'm going to go out there i'm going to throw my paint on there say thank you to the veterans and you know my thought was it's going to get painted over and be long forgotten. You know, it was just going to be my one time to say thank you. And then it was going to continue to be graffitied through the years. I grabbed all the paint I could, what I thought was outdoor paint. I mixed oil and acrylic, which is a huge no, no in the art world. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was going to kind of teach myself how to paint a mural. And so that was, that was the start of it. And I just, I, it was bound to determine to say thank you to these veterans and, uh, You know, my mom and dad always tell this little side story. I'm a college student, so I'm broke. And uh, I was like, Mom, can you buy the the paint for this rock? I want to say thank you to our veterans. And she called dad, and she was like, I don't, he wants to go paint that large boulder north of town. You know, do I buy the paint? It's going to be 50 bucks. And dad was like, do it. That sounds like a, a heck of a project. And so they kind of both take credit for, you know, buying the first paint for the original Freedom Rock and and that's how it was born. I painted, uh, thank you veterans for our freedom and the flag raising at Iwo Jima because that is my all time favorite picture. And it happened exactly like I thought. I painted it, lasted for a few months. Thank you to the veterans. Somebody painted over it, fine, moving on. But the thing is, is Memorial Day came around again and some local veterans asked, hey, will you go out there and paint that same thing that you did last year for us? And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do one better. And so I went out there and I painted uh, Lee Teeter's Reflections, or at least a version of it, um, you know, painting it on a rock. And like I said, as a as a budding mural artist, I still have a lot to learn, but I gave a shot at, you know, that famous Reflections uh, Vietnam Veterans uh, Memorial wall painting and some other scenes. And that ended up lasting for an entire year. Which was unheard of with the rock. It always got painted over within a month or two, but nobody touched that one, and so it lasted a year. And that was like around the town, around the Dare County, where the rock was famous. Everybody's like, "Oh my God, nobody's painted over the rock. Nobody what's going to happen? Nobody painted over the rock. Are we just leaving this how it is?" And instead of doing that, I thought, "Well, I don't want to kill the spirit of the rock. Changing, you know, people kind of got used to it, having different artwork on it." So I thought well i'll go out there and i'll paint another different scene thanking our veterans and so that's kind of what snowballed it into the annual tradition of you know i go out there at the start of may and i allow myself the month of may i finish my new artwork thanking our veterans and i'm always done by memorial day no matter what so some years get more detail than others um, just depending on weather and time and how many visitors i get and that's, that's kind of the whole story of how the rock became, uh, I guess, my canvas of choice and, uh, and, and how I've spent the past 22 years uh, repainting it every Memorial Day. And since then, Ray's project has expanded beyond the original rock. It's a much, much larger operation now because of some interesting Iowan inspiration. I started the, what's known as the Freedom Rock Tour I had the idea to try and paint a smaller version of the original Freedom Rock in every single one of Iowa's 99 counties. I don't know if you know, politics-wise, we have a, a, a very famous senator from Iowa, Chuck Grassley. He's always known for doing what's called the Full Grassley, and that means you know visiting every single Iowa county, um, you know, every time he runs for re-election. And I thought, you know, how neat of an idea is that? To be able to go to each one of our 99 counties and I thought, uh, you know, how cool would it be as an artist to have uh, a piece of artwork in all of Iowa's 99 counties? And so that's kind of where it was born. And uh, my first idea was to try and do uh, one in all 50 states. And my wife was like, hey, let's let's scale it back a little bit and see, you know, let's let's keep you closer to home and keep, keep you in state. And so we kind of talked it over and we decided to do the one in every, every county in Iowa. And uh, when we announced it, I thought, you know, there's only gonna be a few people that get it. Or, you know, I was like, I I told my wife, I was like, if we book 10 in the first year, we'll be lucky. Because I just didn't figure people would, you know, jump on it that quickly. We ended up booking 60 of the Iowa counties in the first year, and then subsequently booked all the counties in the few years after that. And uh, started off, and I just finished uh, a week or two ago, I finished the 95th out of 99 counties in Iowa. I have a few really special stories that kind of stick out. Probably the very first one is uh, you know, goes with uh, the guy that I call the Sergeant at Arms of the Rock now. He's kind of been a caretaker of the flags out there and just kind of overall maintenance of what's going on with the grounds around it. He's a Vietnam veteran and he was uh, driving semi truck for one of the the local companies in town. and uh, I just I just started painting the one that that uh, the very first one. And I started painting it. I put the had the flag raising done. I was I think I was working on the lettering. And he's coming down this large hill, coming towards the rock, and he slams on the brakes of the semi truck and pulls over. And I thought to myself, like, oh crap, I'm in trouble for painting this rock. And I kept telling myself, like, I had called the quarry and asked permission. I have every right to be here and paint this. You know, this guy gets out of the truck and he almost looks angry. And he's like, are you the one painting this? And I was like, yes. And I was like sweating a little bit, and he was like, I just want to say thank you. He's like, us Vietnam veterans didn't get a very good welcome home, and I appreciate, you know, people when they do stuff like this for our veterans, and so and it's become kind of a lifelong friendship from there on out, and for the past 22 years, he's kind of helped me keep an eye on the rock and keep the flags up and flying, and and uh, so it's, that, was, that was one of the memorable ones. Uh, another one, you know, a few years into painting it, I had a young man, I, and I say young man, because I think he was younger than me even at the time, and I was fairly young. Um, he had just gotten back from overseas, and he came out and very polite, you know, said, appreciated my work as a veteran. He also appreciated how quiet it was when it wasn't a patriotic holiday. Like, he didn't, he didn't come out to the Rock on the Memorial Days, the Fourth of Julys, and things like that. He always came out on a non-holiday to sit and reflect. And he also said that, like, he was had, had he told me he's like I, I had suicidal thoughts. I wasn't feeling very good about myself or my service. I came out here. I sat on this little rock, and I stared at your rock. And he goes, it just changed my whole perspective. I he goes, I don't want to get all mushy about it. I just wanted to be. I wanted to tell you that, and I wanted to tell you how much it meant to me. And then he got up and left. And I thought, wow, that's that was powerful. And that's one stories like that are one of the many reasons people always ask why do you continue to do this why do you continue to paint for our veterans and it's veterans like that that i don't know that i may be affecting in a positive way and i hope i am i hope it's landing that way with all of them um, whether i get to talk to them or not like i tell my wife and i've told my parents before if i if i get to save one veteran or if i've i've affected somebody like that uh, that's that's good enough for me Ray also creates us murals with more than just paint. I've actually painted the remains or cremains of many veterans on the rock or mixed them with the paint and painted them on there. So at the at current, I'm around 120 different Vietnam veterans' ashes are mixed into the green paint of the helicopter on the north side of the rock. And uh, how that started was Some vietnam veteran bikers that were on their way to the wall in washington dc for memorial day stopped at the rock i was painting a tribute to our you know vietnam veterans at the time and they you know they absolutely loved it and they go hey can we go get some ashes of our recently fallen uh, vietnam veteran brothers and sprinkle them here by the rock and i said i wish you'd just dump them in my paint can and i'll paint them on the rock because it's so windy out here you know i don't want them to blow away in the wind and they loved that idea. So they, about seven or eight of them went and got these ashes, and they kind of all dumped them into my my paint can, and I mixed them up and and painted it all on uh, these helicopters on the on the north side of the rock. And and they loved it. And I thought that was a neat little tribute. And I thought it was over after that. And then I started getting Vietnam veterans' ashes in the mail. Started getting them from all over the country. And they came with letters. And they came and different little pill boxes and ornate vases and sometimes just Ziploc bags. And they came saying, this is my brother. He he passed away from Agent Orange exposure in Vietnam. Loved your rock, loved your work, wants to have parts of his remains on this rock. Got to the point where I don't think my wife liked to go into the P.O. box because there was always kermains, you know, waiting for us to, and I just, what I did is I collected them each year. I'd let them ride around in the truck with me until it was Memorial Day, and I was done with the rock, and they were always my final addition at one o'clock on Memorial Day, and they still are. So I still collect, you know, our Vietnam veterans who who want to be a part of the rock. I collect their ashes, and I they all go on. We we read their names off, we paint them onto the rock, and they're there forever. The, the hard part and how it's gotten harder for me is I've known a lot of these veterans now, I've gotten to know them over the years and they've always said they want their final resting place to be that rock, and then they've they've passed away and it's you know yeah I've become friends with these guys and uh, yeah it gets it gets harder and harder but I always try and say you know it, it's a it's a unique memorial and kind of a unique place for them to be and I'm I'm so honored to even be a part of it. One of the guys that was in the Veterans Hospital out in Omaha, his son called me and said, can I bring my dad out to the rock? He is not in good health. Would you meet us out there? And I said, absolutely, I'll go out there and say hi, I'm in town and uh, went out there and met him and shook his hand and and he had oxygen hooked up to him and he was like, well, the hospital wasn't very crazy about us getting him out here, but he really wanted to see the rock. He wanted to touch the rock and he would like to ask you if he can be have his ashes put on the rock and I said well absolutely but you know stick around let's you know we'd like to see you get better and what I didn't know was that he was in his final days and two days later I got the call that he had passed and his ashes were on the way and so his family came out and uh, we I believe we didn't do that one on Memorial Day I think we did it on like July 4th because they just they wanted to have like more of a private uh, ceremony and have the ashes go on in that way but i just thought that's it's it's amazing how much the freedom rocks message has gotten out there and i'm glad it has and it's kind of amazing the response and, and how many veterans want to be a part of it and and that couldn't couldn't make me happier i've just i guess i i would say i i don't know how to describe it but i feel very lucky to live in this country and and there's so many men and women that have fought and died for this country over its many years, and I feel like I owe them at the very least this, if not more. I, I feel I feel guilty and spoiled to be able to enjoy such a beautiful country and the freedom to to tr- try and earn to make a living. And and I didn't, I wasn't forced to join the service. I wasn't drafted. I didn't join. I'm not a veteran. And and how lucky am I? And that, that's my outlook, and that's my outlook every day. I always tell people, like, you know, like, oh, what are you doing for Memorial Day weekend, or this is Memorial Day, or Veterans Day? And I'm like, for me, every day is Memorial Day and Veterans Day. It's just, that's the way it is with my family. Um, I've kind of roped them into a, a lifetime of solitude with me, and uh, our goal is always to thank our veterans, lift our veterans up, and uh, do what we can to honor them and say thank
0: you.
3: And a special thanks to Ray Bubba Sorensen for sharing this beautiful story. And and thanks, as always, to Monty for doing such a great job on the production. And a special thanks to Joanne Kidney at WHO for sharing this story with us. And always, we're looking for stories from our listeners. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. And the enduring picture in my mind is of the father and son standing in front of the rock. The father, who would served his country, hooked up to an oxygen canister. And this was the last and dying wish of a vet. And what a beautiful thing to do with your life, Ray. Go to thefreedomrock.com and donate to the Freedom Rock Foundation to help support the preservation of these rocks. If you've missed any of our previous podcasts, please go back and listen to them. We have the story of a man who went skydiving at 100 years old, the story of a group of men who figured out how to use dungeons and dragons as a therapy tool, and also the story of New York City like you've never heard it before, plus many, many more. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories podcast.